So as we la left off last time, we're talking about how St. John the Cross is now going to look at the memory and the will more closely to see how in the same way that the intellect must be darkened, so the memory and the will need to be darkened as well. The will actually ultimately conforming to the will of God the Father. And so one of the things that we see is that uh, Friar John, he gives us a story from the Gospel of Luke, the man who went to a friend at midnight and asked for three loaves. And Friar John says, the three loaves asked for are the virtues of faith, hope, and charity. And they are asked for at midnight, right? So midnight, remember, is when everything is darkened, the senses are darkened, the spiritual goods are darkened. And so he says, because it is in darkness that these virtues are acquired. So a wonderful way of seeing that scripture. I'd never seen that before in how he presented it. And, you know, even the three loaves, I never really paid attention to that number before until uh, St. John of the Cross helped to show that there's a significance to that. So there's a wonderful secondary meaning of that particular scripture and shows how Friar John, you know, he continually opens up the scriptures to us to see and understand in ways we never thought of before. So Jesus tells us in the gospel of Matthew chapter seven, verse 14, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Friar John says this particular scripture speaks directly of the few there are with the knowledge and desire for entering upon the supreme nakedness and emptiness of spirit. The majority are of the opinion that any kind of withdrawal from the world or reformation of life suffices. Some are content with a certain degree of virtue, perseverance in prayer and mortification, but never achieve the nakedness, poverty, selflessness, or spiritual purity which are all the same that the Lord counsels here. He goes on to say, for they still feed and clothe their natural selves with spiritual feelings and consolations instead of divesting, denying themselves of these for God's sake. They think a denial of self in worldly matters is sufficient without an annihilation and purification of spiritual possessions. So we can feel self-satisfied when we make some progress in our spiritual life, especially when we cut our ties with worldly things, you know, we clean out the basement or the garage, we're resisting the urge to constantly buy new things, we're overcoming an addiction to electronic devices, uh, but then we forget that we're all supposed to cut our ties with those spiritual kudos, the sweet and delightful communications from God, what Friar John calls a spiritual sweet tooth. So I ask you to take out your next handout. It's the one that has the empty bowl on it and something above that. So those of you who are online, it looks like this. And it has all these really delicious looking desserts. Some of them look really, really good. And basically saying, there's this, 
versus this? You know, which one do we want? Do we want the empty bowl? You're thinking, well, the empty bowl is empty. Why would I want that? Look at all these really good things up here. See how my spiritual sweet tooth, look at all the things that it can delight in. And it's just a wonderful insight uh, with John. You know, when I first came up on this phrase in the writing, I thought spiritual sweet tooth, I thought that is just so perfect for describing this. All these little spiritual kudos that we like to have. So he says, it happens that when some of the solid, perfect food, that is the annihilation of all sweetness in God, the pure spiritual cross and nakedness of Christ's poverty of spirit is offered them in dryness, distaste, and trial. They run from it as from death and wander about in search of only sweetness and delightful communications from God. Such an attitude is not the hallmark of self-denial and nakedness of spirit, but an indication of a spiritual sweet tooth. So I just thought that is really uh, just kind of a, a keen insight on his part, a way of presenting that, that really, really hits home. Um, in my spiritual life, is this, is this what I'm looking for? And this is what I'm going to constantly be focusing on? Or am I looking for this? Because this is going to lead me deeper to God. So if is what we are seeking from God, those constant good feelings, little signs, assurances. In other words, we were at the ice cream bar with two or three scoops of ice cream covered in melted dark chocolate, sprinkled with nuts, topped with whipped cream and an abundance of cherries. What? If God gave us an empty bowl, and that is all, will we continue to be satisfied with him? Will we continue to follow the path God is calling us to walk, the straight and narrow way? Or will we desire or even obsess about getting back to those sweet times that we experienced before? An empty bowl is not a lot to go on but it is the best thing for our diet. And for if we are satisfied with this empty bowl, then God will eventually in his time and his way, he will fill it with an abundance of good things. A genuine spirit seeks the distasteful in God rather than the delectable. It leans more towards suffering than towards consolation more toward going without everything for God rather than toward possession. So following Christ and denying self versus seeking of the self and God. He says, dying to self is a complete temporal, natural, and spiritual death. We read in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, verse 25, for whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. There's only room for self-denial, such as our Savior asserts, and the cross. And so the cross is a supporting staff and greatly lightens and eases the journey. How many of us have seen the cross in that way? 
St. John of the Cross says that cross is a supporting staff, like a, like a walking stick. It's a supporting staff that holds us up. And it greatly lightens and eases the journey. It doesn't, doesn't burden it. Once again, we read in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, verse 30, my yoke is sweet and my burden, the cross light. So in the exercise of the self-denial, everything else and even more is discovered and accomplished. If one fails in this exercise, the root and sum of all the virtues, the other methods would amount to no more than going about in circles without any progress. Even if they result in considerations and communications as lofty as those of the angels. A man makes progress only through imitation of Christ, who is the way and the truth and the life. And so I ask you to look now at your next handout. So it should be the one that has all the things going around in circles, the little dog going around in a circle, chasing its tail. A few cartoons just to kind of lighten the mood, right? That humor that John always liked to use to teach and to help people. And so I always like this top one, you know, progress is going around in the same circle, but faster. Ever feel like that? And then I like the one with the uh, Vikings, the little scrawny ones, that, that would be me, I'd be on that side. I'm the, one of the scrawny ones there. And these big hefty guys, they're wondering, you know, why are we going around in circles? <laughs> <laughs> and so St. John the Cross says, in the exercise of the self-denial, everything else and even more is discovered and accomplished. So if one fails in this exercise, the root and sum of all the virtues, the other methods would amount to no more than going around in circles without any progress. Even if they result in considerations and communications as lofty as those of the angels. So that's something really to think about because he says the only progress is made through that imitation of Christ. He keeps going back to that again and again. We have to imitate Christ. It is him who we are to be imitating in everything. And if we try to find any kind of substitute for that, it's, it's not going to amount to anything for us. It is only Christ and him alone who becomes that one that we are to imitate. So Christ becomes the perfect example for us. In his life, he died to the senses. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, possessing nothing but the Father. At his death, he died naturally, the dark night of the senses. At the moment of his death, when Jesus calls out, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? This was the annihilation of his soul without any consolation or relief. The most extreme abandonment, sensitivity that he had suffered in his life, the dark night of the spirit. In his humanness, you know, he got to experience everything that we do except sin. And so in his humanness, he is experiencing that dark night. And it's the darkest of nights. And he brought about the reconciliation and union of the human race with God through grace. 
at the moment in which he was most annihilated in all things. And so you can look at your next handout. Let's see which might not be in the right order. It's the one of Christ crucified. Yeah, that should be the next one. Okay, yep. So this is uh, from The Passion, the movie. It's gruesome. It's, it's historically accurate. This is what it would have looked like, the crucifixes that we have often in our churches. They are somewhat sanitized. We don't see just how brutally Jesus was treated we sometimes the Spanish crosses. If you've seen Spanish crosses, you've seen crosses like in Mexico and such. They'll they'll be like this. They they're very graphic. They bring home really and truly what Jesus experienced, the intense suffering. And so I give you this picture because it's a good picture to just take the time to reflect upon and to meditate upon and to just think about what Jesus endured for us and to never, even just for one moment, to forget that, to keep that always in front of us because that's what St. John of the Cross did. And that's what made him so willing to, to suffer and to endure that suffering. So imagine what you and I could achieve through God's grace if we are willing to be annihilated in this way. I would like to continue discussing the matter, Friar John says, because from my observations, Christ is to a great extent unknown by those who consider themselves his friends. Because of their extreme self-love, they go about seeking him, their own consolations and satisfactions, but they do not seek out of great love for him, his bitter trials and deaths. So do we stand accused? Are we guilty of approaching Christ in this way? So back to the intellect, just briefly. If we depend too much on the intellect, it can actually become a hindrance to faith. So when the intellect tries too hard to figure things out, when in reality, it is unable to do so. So, and this is because the intellect can only know things naturally by way of the bodily senses or through reflection, but not supernaturally. So keep that in mind once again, the, the intellect only can know natural knowledge, not supernatural. No one can see God directly with the intellect. Friar John gives some examples from scripture on this. Moses not looking directly at the burning bush. The prophet Elijah covering his face with his cloak, blinding his intellect. Moses is told directly by God, no man shall see me and remain alive. Our intellect would be overwhelmed. The experience of seeing God face to face would be too much for our physical bodies. It would traumatize our minds. It is only in heaven that we are given the faculties to see and experience God face to face. So the intellect cannot understand, the will cannot experience, and the imagination cannot picture God 
as he really is. So once again, the intellect cannot understand, the will cannot experience, and the imagination cannot picture God as he really is. All of those things fall short. In order to draw near the divine ray, the intellect must advance by unknowing rather than by the desire to know, and by blinding itself and remaining in darkness rather than opening its eyes. God is darkness to our intellect, but faith dazzles and blinds us. The more intense a man's faith, the closer is his union with God. So Friar John shows examples of this darkness and how God speaks from the dark clouds to Moses and how God speaks from the dark air to Job. These two examples show how their intellects were darkened and it was through faith that they were interacting with God. So now we must move on to what we would call visions. These may be accompanied by words and even smells. These come to the senses from God, but Friar John warns one must never rely on them or accept them. A man should rather flee from them completely and have no desire to determine whether they be good or bad. The more exterior and corporeal they are, the more senses they involve, the less certain is their divine origin. God's communication is more commonly and appropriately given to the spirit, in which there is greater security and profit for the soul than to the senses where ordinarily there's extreme danger and room for deception. You know, this is why when the children are saying Our Lady appeared to them in Fatima, you know, there's a lot of skepticism on the part of the bishop, on the part of the church. Uh, when we see Our Lady uh, appear to uh, Juan Diego and declare that she's Our Lady Guadalupe and, and he is to tell the bishop about this and there's to eventually be uh, a beautiful shrine, a church built there in honor of Our Lady. Um, the bishop is very, very skeptical because this kind of thing, they, they don't know, well, is it, is it divine origin or is it some other origin? And as Friar John says, the, the more it involves the senses, the, the more open the senses are to deception, especially from Satan. So the church, you know, is very wise uh, about private versus public revelation. You know, the church's teachings, uh, dogmatic doctrine, you know, those are all public revelation. Uh, and those are all binding on all Catholics. And those we, we have to adhere to. We, we, there's, they're they're non-negotiables. Private revelation, the church only examines to make sure there's nothing contrary to the faith in those. And then we'll recommend if the faithful wish to use this particular devotion, uh, that they are welcome to do so because there's, there's nothing in there that's a danger to their faith. Um, and that's why the investigations take a long time sometimes because the church has to, to check this out thoroughly. And to, to, if, there's a, if there's a lot of things like with Our Lady of Medjugorje, you know, there's ongoing extensive revelations. Um, they have to go through all of those. And the church usually will not make a declaration until the revelations stop. And so until none of the seers of Medjugorje are receiving any more messages, then the church really isn't in a position yet to, to say, you know, whether this is something that she can recommend or if this is something she has reservations about. And that's part of the reason why there's been a, a long delay there. Um, 
So St. John the Cross is saying, just be very careful. Now, do people have visions? You know, people tell me, you know, a loved one appeared to them and just kind of reassured them after that loved one had died. You know, is, is that real? Um, for that person, that, that may have been very real. That may have actually happened. And St. John the Cross says, okay, if it happened, okay, it happened, now let it go. See? Now the problem comes in is when somebody says, uh, you know, I had an apparition the other night and this, uh, this saint appeared to me and this saint said, you know, that I need to now warn the world about this upcoming event or I need to tell the Pope this or I need to, see, that's when the church gets involved because then we're taking something that's private uh, and it may just be for that individual and now we're making it public and we're including other people in it. That's when the church has to step in and say, okay, wait a minute here. We have to investigate this. So St. John the Cross basically says, just be very careful, especially if it's through the senses that these things come, you know, and people say, you know, they have smell of roses, a, a saint appearing or our lady appearing to them, you know, and that could very well be, but his main advice is then don't make anything more of it. Okay. That person appeared, that saint appeared. Usually if they don't say anything, that's, that's oftentimes how it is. Um, other times, if there's a message with that, then that's where you would go to a spiritual director uh, and say, you know, this is a message that I received in this way. And can you help me to know, like, is this something I should even be paying attention to? Um, so, because St. John of the Cross says, you know, visions can be from Satan. He's usually very deceptive and he can make them look very real. Um, but he says, usually if something's from Satan, the spirit will have agitation, dryness, vanity, or presumption. So a vision that's from God, it penetrates the soul, it moves the will to love, and it leaves the effect within. So the soul can't resist it, but it is to dismiss it, dismiss it immediately. And part of that is humility as well. Okay, okay, I receive this. Whatever, if it's from God it has an immediate effect and then there's nothing more to do with it anyhow. So dwelling on it, going and sharing with all your friends, this is what happened, you know? So somebody comes knocking on my door at three in the morning, father, father, <laughs> Saint so-and-so just appeared to me. You know what I'll tell you? Go back to bed. <laughs> Whatever effect that was supposed to have, it's already done. <laughs> and so, so basically, it's great advice from St. John the Cross. We just, whatever effect, if it's from God, it's already happened in the soul, the effect that it's supposed to produce. And then there's nothing more to do with it. And if it is something more involved, like with the children at Fatima, you know, where it's ongoing, it's extensive, et cetera, then, then the church will, will step in and, and do that proper investigation of it. Um, so now Friar John moves on to what he calls the interior corporal sense, the imaginative power and fantasy. He says meditation uses these two, sentence, these two senses, the imaginative power and fantasy. 
such as imagining Christ crucified or imagining the heavenly Jerusalem in heaven. He says, while these are good and useful in meditative prayer, they will become an obstacle if one wants to advance towards that divine union with God. So he's, he's basically saying, moving to that contemplative prayer that we spoke of before. So once again, a reminder, he's not knocking meditative prayer. He's just saying, these things are good and useful, but if you want to eventually uh, go on to contemplative prayer, know that these things will have to then be uh, darkened. And so he said, therefore, the soul will have to empty itself of these images and leave this sense in darkness. So if we stay in meditation for too long, when God is calling us on to go further along the spiritual path, then we can end up getting little satisfaction from it, that is meditation or none at all. Instead, one experiences aridity, fatigue, and restlessness of soul. So if we reach that point where meditation has done what it's supposed to do, now we're to move on to contemplation, meditation is going to begin losing uh, those effects that we've, we've had from it before. And so he says, once the faculties reach the end of their journey, the mystical union with God, they cease to work just as a man ceases to walk when he reaches the end of his journey. If everything consisted of going, one would never arrive. So to arrive at contemplation and think that one is, to arrive at contemplation and think that one is doing nothing, may make the soul think that it needs to be doing something and it will revert back to meditation, which it does not need to do. Okay. So the soul must learn to abide in that quietude with the loving attentiveness of God and pay no heed to the imagination and its work. At this stage, the faculties are at rest and do not work actively, but passively. So once again, getting back to that, that, that passive where God is doing the work for us. See, our culture is not used to solitude, not at all. It's not used to quietude. It's Many souls in arriving at this stage of the spiritual life, they, they find it very difficult. Uh, and they often revert back to the crutches of earlier prayer. You know, Friar John gives some signs for when we should stop meditative prayer and open ourselves to contemplative prayer. He says, the timing is important in this, as discursive meditation can be very useful in one's spiritual life, and to abandon it too soon before one is ready for contemplation could be a should be avoided. At the same time, one does not want to hang on to meditation when it has outlived its usefulness. So there's a careful balance there and it's to recognize and to see. So he's giving three signs of how we know we've, we've kind of reached the, the point of where meditation is no longer gonna take us any further. And we're now ready, most likely, to now take that step to contemplation. So he says, this first sign is dryness is now the outcome of fixing the senses upon subjects with formally provided satisfaction. That using images no longer brings any delight or help to the person. The second sign, a disinclination to fix the imagination or sense faculties upon other particular objects, exterior or interior. In other words, there's no desire to fix on things that, uh, no longer matter. And then third, he says, a person likes to remain alone in the loving awareness of God without acts and exercises of the intellect, memory, or will. and prefers to remain only in the general loving awareness uh, and knowledge, not particular knowledge on understanding. So it's a general knowledge. It's a general knowledge that comes from that just being with God, right? Because that particular knowledge, that's, that's trying to 
know and understand those things in those specific ways. The general knowledge is just that, that being in that presence of God. And so he says, this is the most important sign to just be with God. And he says, all three of these signs must be experienced together before one moves from meditation to contemplation. Okay. So the more habituated uh, he becomes to the calm, the deeper his experience of the general loving knowledge of God will grow. This knowledge is more enjoyable than all other things because without it, the soul's, the soul's labor, it affords peace, rest, savor, and delight. So Friar John gives a great example of what is going on when one has moved from meditation to contemplation, but then falls back to meditation. He says it's like peeling the rind from a piece of fruit and getting ready to enjoy the fruit, but the rind is where the soul experienced images and reasoning, but is now experiencing none of that. And it tries to go back to the rind, but it has already been peeled. So they become lost and confused as what is happening. What is happening was the soul is on the verge of enjoying the fruit of mystical union with God, but has abandoned that to return to meditation, the rind of the fruit, but even that is gone. So that's your uh, next handout, by the way. So gave you that one on all the uh, wonderful desserts. Now we have to have something healthy, right? So we have the, the peelings of an orange here. And that this is the fruit of meditation, okay? Understanding particular ideas and reasoning through images and forms. So that's what we get. We get the rind of the orange. That's meditation, okay? That's still a good thing, but the fruit of contemplation is really the lack of images, but a loving substantial quietude where nothing is understood particularly and in which one likes to rest. And so, you know, you can almost imagine the orange, the orange just bursting into light that is so intense that you can't even see the orange anymore uh, versus this. So if you're on the verge of experiencing this, and then you run back to this, he says, why would you do that? And the fact is, see, you're, you're running back now to the orange and you want to peel it again, but it's already been peeled. So now what? Now you're lost because you don't even know what to do in meditation. So he says, be very careful. First of all, in that transition from meditation to contemplation, make sure you're ready for that. Make sure those three signs are definitely there. And then make sure once you're advancing in that contemplation, you don't go running back to this, to meditation. Because he says that transition would be very difficult and, and the soul actually will be confused and lost because of that. Okay, so it's important to note that the imagination wanders back and forth between meditation and contemplation. Okay, so, so it, is, it is still kind of there in different ways, but if it is seeking contemplation, then it will ultimately be dissatisfied with the images presented in meditation. So it kind of carries over. The imagination will carry over somewhat into contemplation, um, but at some point it'll say, hmm, this is falling short, and it will be willing to then abandon those images. So next, Friar John speaks of oblivion. That is when the purity and simplicity of the knowledge 
is the cause of oblivion so that one does not even acknowledge the passing of time or realize where one was. The reason for this is that to be united to God who is outside of time, one does not recognize or experience time passing. So the mind knows God without knowing how it knows him. And this occurs only when the soul is not exercising the natural and spiritual faculties. So Friar John, he concludes that just because one begins on the path of contemplation does not necessarily mean that one will never return to contemplation. Uh, not yet having acquired the habit of contemplation, one will still find it useful to return periodically to meditation until that time when contemplation becomes more of a habit and is more easily attained. So it's important not to stop meditation if one has not yet achieved the habit of contemplation. Okay, so that's, that's the key. Keep that meditation going until you have the habit of contemplation down really well. Um, so, and patience is needed so that one does not rush into contemplation without first having taken the necessary steps and including having acquired a good habit of meditation first. So good habit of meditation, then once you have that good habit of contemplation, that's the point you can abandon uh, the meditation and now stay exclusively in the contemplation, okay? So an important note, if the person is unable to meditate or he or she should learn to remain in God's presence with a loving attention and tranquil intellect, even though it seems to himself to be idle for little by little uh, and very soon the divine calm and peace the wondrous sublime knowledge of God enveloped in divine love will be infused into his soul. So Friar John then, you know, at this point, he's going to discuss the imaginative vision, what the imagination experiences supernaturally. And he says, these are experienced without the external senses. They are often represented in a more beautiful and perfect way. So the imaginative vision, uh, these are supernatural, okay? So he says, Satan's also capable of representing these images. So we have to be careful still. Um, one of the best examples of an imaginative vision is the prophet uh, Daniel. You know, and Daniel writes, uh, if you've read the book of Daniel, you know, it's very, very much uh, apocalyptic, very much like the book of Revelation. You know, Daniel's saying, you know, I saw my vision by night and beheld four Winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different one from another. And he goes on to describe all of these, these really amazing images. That is a great example of imaginative vision. Okay. So once again, Friar John says to neither accept or keep these imaginative visions. If you have them, okay. All right. They're there. And then the soul should just move on. Okay, he says, maybe they're authentic, maybe they're not, but they should not impede us from the journey by our dwelling on them. If they are of God, whatever good they were to achieve has already happened. And dwelling upon these visions does no further good. Okay, so once again, you see what his, his basically default position is on all of these things. You know, visions, imaginative visions, all these. You experience them, okay, just say, Acknowledge, yep, okay. Whatever good effects happened, if it's from God, it's happened already. Move on. That's all there is to it. 
It keeps it very simple, keeps it very safe. Uh, because if we start to entertain them, we want to explore them some more, especially if they're from Satan, then he could lead us down a very misleading path. And so we want to keep him from having that advantage. Okay. So we read in St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 13, verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. So Friar John goes on to say that one must be very careful in choosing uh, a spiritual director and discerning these visions. If one has a director who encourages them and gives them uh, credulity, then one should look for another director who will not do this. Most especially the director, he should never petition God for revelations. So we never want to be asking God, I want, I want to have them. And then we go to a spiritual director who says, wow, you're having those? Um, tell me about them. And, and gets all excited about them. And so he's saying, nope, that's, that's your spiritual director's approach, then you need to find a new spiritual director. So one should neither be sure of visions nor believe them blindly, even though he knows they are God's revelations, response, or words. Though they may in themselves contain certitude and truth, they do not always have it in their causes and in our way of understanding them. So we might be limited in how we see and understand some of these things. Um, so, and, and so that is another problem is when we try to start interpreting those things on our own, we could really come up with some very wrong ideas, okay? So Friar John gives many examples from scripture where visions occurred but were interpreted wrongly by those receiving them. Often prophecies were made but were later fulfilled uh, in, in generations, you know, that were two, three, or four, or ten generations down, down the road. But people thought the, the prophet was speaking about their generation right now. And so when what the prophet said didn't happen, they said that must be a false prophet. And then they usually persecuted the prophet or killed him. And then to see that the way the prophecy was made the true understanding of it was it was not for that generation. It was for uh, a later generation. So we read in Isaiah uh, chapter 28, verse 10 to 11. He says, for everyone is saying concerning the prophets, because Isaiah was a great prophet uh, and he suffered for it. Promise and promise again, wait and wait some more, wait and wait some more. A word with you here, a word with you there. For with words from his God's lips, but in another tongue, he will speak to his people. So patience and waiting were not the strong suit of the Jewish people at that time, just as patience and waiting are not something emphasized by our current culture. We want it, not now, but yesterday. Think about every time we stand in line and there are two or three or ten people ahead of us and we are in a hurry. How long does our patience last? <laughs> then just think about God's time and how he may have us wait months or years before something is completed. This is an important insight about contemplation. It does not come easy. One may spend many years in meditation before finally achieving contemplation. So we must be very patient with ourselves. As St. Francis de Sales says so well, have patience with all things but first of all, with yourself.
So in the end, when it comes to vision fire, John states, evidently then, even though the words of revelations be from God, we cannot find assurance in them since our understanding of them, we could be easily deluded and extremely so. So they embody an abyss and depth of spiritual significance and to want to limit them to our interpretation and sensory apprehensions is like wanting to grasp a handful of air, which will escape the hand entirely and leave only a particle of dust. Okay, so, you know, whether God discloses conditional element or not, a person cannot find assurance in his own interpretation because he's incapable of comprehending the secret truths and the diverse meanings of God's sayings. So, in our, all our necessities, trials, and difficulties, no better or safer aid exists for us than prayer and hope that God will provide for us by the means that he desires. So. Once again, you know, it goes back to that. If, if God's given that to us, the effects immediate, and that's, that's all there is to it. There's nothing more to be gained whatsoever by going any further with these things. And so I just think that's, that's great advice from St. John the Cross. Uh, and they probably had all kinds of people running around uh, at his time, you know, saying that they had a vision of this or so-and-so appeared to them or this message was being given. And you could just imagine um, how much of that, that he probably saw uh, all around him and wondered, you know, how much of that, how much of that is, is authentic. And then what is to be gained by them now going around and, and trying to tell everybody about these things uh, because it could be false. It could uh, be misleading. It could end up being the person wanting that attention. And then it becomes a whole thing of pride and, and the destructive uh, way that pride uh, then goes after the soul. So it's just really, I think, um, great how he, he says, you know, basically in a nutshell, um, this is, this is how we should approach all of this stuff and then just leave it to God. So, and one of the things that we see is um, that uh, he calls us to, the, he says, the trait of a humble person that he does not dare deal with God independently, nor, nor can he be completely satisfied without human counsel and direction. So, He's saying, well, if these things, you know, if they're bothering you, if they're, if they're repeating themselves and things like that, then you need to seek out the counsel of another. Um, and he talks about, you know, Jesus says, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. And so if it is from Satan, he says, it is more difficult for Satan to deal with two or three people united together than an individual by him or herself. Yeah, that's, that's, that's great insight there on his part. It's like when we, when we bring somebody trusted into this uh, and we uh, are able to have them help us to discern and sort through it, it's going to be better than us just trying to figure it out on our own and then coming to the wrong conclusion. So he's, he's only saying that if that's something that let's say, you know, we're having a vision and then we have a second or third or fourth one, they keep, keep appearing and then it's starting to disturb us and upset us. Um, 
then we start kind of maybe overthinking and different things. He says, that's, that's when you need to seek that counsel. You need to get that clarified right away. And if you do that with another person or two other people who are trusted and, 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 and somebody who's going to give you, you know, good guidance on that, then that's going to help you to be able to, to sort through that and, and to see, yeah, that might be, uh, something that's actually coming from Satan and not from God. So he says, um, spiritual directors should, gi should guide them in the way of faith by giving them good instructions on how to turn their eyes from all these things and on their obligation to denude their appetite and spirit of these communications. They should explain how one act done in charity is more precious in God's sight than all the visions and communications possible since they imply neither the merit nor demerit, and how many who have not received these experiences are comparably more advanced than others who have had many. So he says, just having a lot of visions, that doesn't mean a thing. One act done in charity can do good, more good for the soul than all of those visions all put together. So he says, visions are neither a sign of one's holiness or the degree of one's love. Okay, and then he, dis he discusses what he terms visions of the soul because they do not require the exterior or interior bodily senses. So, okay, so, so these, the senses aren't involved in these visions at all. He says they are intelligible, spiritually visible, using the spiritual eye of the soul. The intellect is capable of seeing objects spiritually just as the eye can see things physically. So he says locutions are heard by the intellect the way the ear hears sound in the world. So these experiences are bestowed immediately upon the soul through the supernatural work and means. So once again, if a person experiences something like this, a vision of the soul, the effect's immediate. And then it's done. So once again, as before, he says, these visions of the soul should be dismissed as soon as possible. This is not to hinder the way to the dark night where these are no longer possible. One note of reassurance, he says, these visions of the soul are nobler, safer, and more advantageous than the imaginative corporal visions that we spoke of before, because those, remember, involve the senses, where these don't involve the senses. So they're safer um, and less exposed to the devil's meddlesomeness. And they are more purely and delicately communicated to the soul and involve none of its own work, at least actively. Okay. So then he talks about... Um, he says there are two kinds of uh, supernatural spiritual visions. The corporal deal with material things of heaven and earth. And they are seen by the supernatural light derived by God. These can be seen by us while here on earth. And then incorporeal substances, angels and souls, can only be seen by a higher light, the light of glory. And these can only be seen by us in heaven. Okay. So corporeal, we can see those while we're here on earth. Incorporeal, we cannot see until we're in heaven. So the effects of these visions of the soul produce in the soul a quietude, illumination, gladness, resembling that of glory, delight, purity, love, humility, and an elevation and inclination towards God. Sometimes these effects are more intense, sometimes less. Sometimes one effect predominates, at other times another. This diversity is due to the spirit that receives them and to God's wishes. 
Okay. So then Friar John goes on to discuss the naked truths. That is, God is the direct object of this knowledge in that one of his attributes is omnipotence, is fortitude, goodness, sweetness, etc., is sublimely experienced, and it remains fixed in the soul. Since this communication is pure contemplation, the soul clearly understands that it is ineffable, that is too great to be described by words. Okay. So he says these touches engender such sweetness and intimate delight in the soul that one of them would be more than compensate for all the trials suffered in life, even though innumerable. Hmm. It's like, wow. And he says, through these touches, a person becomes so courageous and so resolved to suffer many things for Christ that he finds it a special suffering to observe that he does not suffer. Now, you got to love that, right? <laughs> Let me read that one more time. Through these touches, so these, these special, uh, these direct objects of, of knowledge from God, these, he gives this just infused kind of contemplative experience. He says, through these touches, a person becomes so courageous and so resolved to suffer many things for Christ that he finds it a special suffering to observe that he does not suffer. It's like, I want to suffer so much for you, Lord, and, and I'm not suffering enough. I want to suffer even more. And so that soul just wants to, to give everything and then, and then some. Okay? So he, he goes through then the kinds of revelation and such. And, you know, it's the same, same advice that he's giving before. Uh, and... Whatever there is, is there immediate and let it go, move on. So once again, he says, you know, even with locutions that a person will reason about a subject, proceeding thought by thought, forming precise words and judgments, deducing, discovering such unknown truths with so much ease and clarity that it will seem to him that he's doing nothing and that another person is interiorly reasoning, answering and teaching him. So... Once again, once again, Friar John says, dismiss these as quickly as they appear. The problem that is in meditation, a person can experience a locution and then think everything he or she has meditated on is true, as coming from God, when a person could be in error or even in heresy. <laughs> this reminds me of seminary. <laughs> so we're sitting in seminary class, Father Donald, Father Donald, brilliant, brilliant Thomist. This guy, he like had the whole summa memorized in his head and he could teach it so well. Uh, and he, uh, so we, we were talking about something one day in class and, and one of the seminarians, you know, we, he's passing back the papers uh, and he goes, he goes, well, there's a sufficient amount of material heresy in your papers um, and we're going material heresy and material heresy is you've written a heresy in your paper, but you're too ignorant to know it. <laughs> and we're all just laughing because we're just like, and then, uh, and so one of the seminarians says to his friend, aha, see, you're a heretic. And father Donald goes, what? And you could see he was, he was like playing but the seminarian didn't quite 
catch on to that because he wasn't paying attention. I, I, I called him a heretic and he goes, ha, none of you are intelligent enough to be a heretic. <laughs> so Father Donald, he was great. What a great teacher. So, so the Holy Spirit, Friar John says in these locutions, indeed communicates some light to the soul, yet the light given in faith in which there is no understanding is quantitatively different from the other, as is the purest gold from the basest metal, and quantitatively as the sea from a drop of water. So to kind of explain this a little better, because that's a lot of words, uh, go to your next handout, and it should be the one with a drop of water and the ocean. So we see the top is the... the uh, the um, quality, the, the light given in faith. You see the gold there, right? Versus the light given to the intellect in a locution, in a, in a vision. Uh, and it's just the base metals. See, it's, it's, it's very limited in its quality. Then even better is the example of the light given in faith. It's the ocean, and then the light given to the intellect in a locution and a vision is one drop of water. That's the difference. And that's why St. John the Cross says, don't get overly focused on these visions. Because in comparison to the light that's given in faith, that is, that is given eventually in that dark night when that is achieved, compared to that, that, that vision that you had, that's... That's all. That's all you experience there. This is what you want. So do not be satisfied and get focused and begin to, to, to be thinking about these all the time. So you see how that is. It's really, really good, I think, how he, he, he gives that, that uh, comparison. So thirdly, Friar John, he speaks about substantial locutions. These differ greatly from the formal ones he was talking about before, substantial locutions, another big word. They're important and valuable because of the life, virtue, and comparable blessing they impart to the soul. A locution of this sort does more good for a person than a whole lifetime of deeds. A person need not need reject these because they come directly from God, received passively. See, we're not involved at all in this. God gives it to us passively, and Satan is incapable of producing substantial locutions uh, unless a soul is possessed. That's the only time Satan can produce this kind of vision. Uh, and so that's why these are so trustworthy. And he says, you don't have to reject these. These locutions are a great aid to union with God. And the more interior and substantial they are, the more advantageous they are for the soul. And he says, happy the soul for whom God speaks these substantial words. So an, ex an example of what that's like, a, a substantial loc locution, a substantial vision, is God saying to the soul, be not afraid. And the soul is immediately at peace, filled with courage, trusting God completely. So you have in that, that passive part, God just saying, 
be not afraid. And, 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 and you hear it clearly. You don't hear it with your physical ears. You're hearing it interiorly. And the effect is immediate. He says, that's when you know it's from God. And that, that, that one, you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to reject it. In fact, God's given it to you solely as a gift. You haven't earned it. There's no way of like saying, I want to acquire that. I want to, I want to have that. That's a good thing. You know, uh, you know, father, father, Gary got to experience that the other day. Why don't I get to, you know, it's just this whole thing. Like, no, God gives it to who he wants, when he wants, how he wants. And we're just glad we're overjoyed when he does that for us. And so we can then conclude our understanding of the dark night of the intellect. In the next talk, we will be looking at the dark night of the memory and will uh, more in depth. Once these three are darkened through God's grace, one will have arrived at the mountaintop and achieved the mystical union with God. And so we'll be delving into book three uh, tomorrow morning. And so hopefully, I think you will all sleep really well tonight. I think, <laughs> I think I've overburdened your, your brains today. Uh, I hope it's, it's helped you get just a little more familiar now and you're not quite as intimidated and starting to kind of get kind of what, what Friar John is, is trying to help and teach us here and to see how we can begin to start applying some of this and and like he said, be patient, take our time. Most important, make sure we're staying with that meditation and really working on that meditation for now. Because once we get that good habit of meditative prayer down and, and we have that really in a good place, then we're, we're going to be ready to take that next step. And so be patient. Uh, this is not something that we get to experience like, like God's just going to give it to us overnight or that we can somehow accomplish this in 24 hours. Uh, this is something, it, it, it takes discipline. It takes cooperation with God's grace. It takes a, a lot of patience, uh, a lot of our ability to be able to little by little uh, give that surrender to God. And then ultimately uh, through his grace to reach that point where we can surrender completely and totally to him.